I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hello, and welcome to this instalment of the Australian Crisis Simulation Podcast for 2022. My name is Tim Barham. This week I have the privilege of sitting down with distinguished academic Ian Henry to discuss the Taiwan flashpoint and its strategic implications for Australia, given our membership of ANZUS and AUKUS. Dr Ian Henry is a lecturer for the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. Dr Henry's research interests relate to the history of Australia's foreign and strategic policy, international security and alliance theory. His research can be found in leading journals, including International Security, the Australian Journal of International Affairs, and Security Challenges. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Henry. It's great to be here, Tim. Cheers. So I think it's a good idea if we begin with a little bit of history. Since 1980, the US has officially held a one-China policy, maintaining formal diplomatic ties with China and not Taiwan. That said, it's also maintained a posture of strategic ambiguity over how it would respond to a Chinese military attack on Taiwan. Generations of China's communist leaders have vowed to resubsume Taiwan into China. However, some analysts have noted that Xi Jinping has taken a more aggressive stance that makes a military takeover more likely than previously estimated. Chinese officials, as well as commentators around the world, have stated that Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan is an irresponsible escalation in tensions in the Taiwan Strait. Furthermore, in recent months, Joe Biden's rhetoric has implied or explicitly promised military support from the US to Taiwan in the event of a Chinese military attack. Since Pelosi's visit, Taiwan has been targeted by a string of cyber attacks and the Chinese military has initiated large-scale military exercises around the island. In this context, do you think that these recent events demonstrate a shift in US strategic posture toward Taiwan? And does this increase the probability of an escalation in the Taiwan Strait flashpoint? So many in the US believe that their actions over the last few years have not departed from Washington's one China policy, but Beijing sees it differently. In Biden's comments, in the visits of former officials to Taiwan, and in the increasing number of calls to firmly commit to Taiwan's defence, decision makers in China see America's conduct as departing from the bilateral understandings that were negotiated mainly during the 1970s. To make sense of the competing perspectives on how these two states view current events, it's really important to go back to the original texts of foundational documents like the Three Communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act, and the Six Assurances. And it's on those that I base my perspective on these issues. And I won't go so far as to say that Washington has deliberately changed its policies with an intent to depart from the previous long-standing One China uh, policy that it's held. But the perception in China is that the US has deliberately changed its policies. And I think that perception is actually a very reasonable one. As a result of this, Beijing has conducted the military exercises you refer to in an effort to re-impress upon Washington and Taipei how seriously it takes this matter and its intent to deter any further drift away from what it has historically perceived as the status quo. 
Because of this dynamic, we are now in a dangerous action-reaction cycle where both the United States and China believe that they are trying to uphold the status quo while the other party is obviously trying to revise it. And this dynamic does increase the likelihood of another crisis across the Taiwan Strait. We have actually seen some people in recent days refer to the present situation as the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. I'm not sure that we are quite there yet, but what this does highlight is that there is an urgent need for both sides to look back to that bargain that they constructed in the 1970s, to consider the priorities and the perspective of the other party, and to think about how a new bargain or a new mutual understanding can be constructed. One of our other podcasts is discussing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I would be interested to incorporate your perspectives on the implications of this for the China-Taiwan situation. What, if anything, does the Ukraine conflict tell us about how the US might respond to Chinese aggression against Taiwan? This is a great question, and there have been so many hot takes on comparing the two, but there are some big differences. It's a very, very different military situation because, of course, geography matters. So the projection of military force is significantly more difficult across the Taiwan Strait. Mearsheimer referred to the stopping power of land after water, and that is the exact kind of challenge that the PLA would face in trying to militarily capture uh, the island of Taiwan. And so depending on what Taiwan does, invasion attempts take on different risk profiles, and in, in some respects the attempted crossing of the strait would perhaps be the best point to defeat an attempted invasion. This is very, very different to the situation in Ukraine where you can push ground forces across a land border. Other differences include the fact that the resupply of forces projected into the target territory would be much more difficult across the strait. The Russians struggled to resupply their, uh, their forces, even though doing so was not an especially militarily difficult task, given the fact that they could do it across land. But this would be much, much harder for PLA forces in, uh, if they managed to secure a beachhead on Taiwan. But this, of course, is a factor that cuts both ways. The resupply of Taiwanese forces by external parties such as the United States would be much more difficult as well. Another fact is that Taiwan's preparedness at the moment is less than Ukraine's. The Ukrainians had essentially been preparing for this for a couple of years, and uh, we are now starting to see a much greater debate around whether Taiwan needs to do the same thing. It's also a different political situation. Ukraine's independence and existence as a nation state was widely accepted, but this isn't quite the same for Taiwan. Many in the region have only unofficial relations with Taiwan and don't recognise it as a nation state. And I would also wonder and probably go so far as to suggest that Taiwan is more important to the Chinese Communist Party than Ukraine is to Putin. And so it's likely to give China a greater impetus or motivation than we're seeing in Russia. I also think that the, the crisis, if one presents over Taiwan, could be on a very different timeline. It may not be the kind of slow burn crisis that we've seen in Ukraine. It might be very quick to escalate and to take on wider implications as regional allies have to consider whether they will allow the US to use bases, say, in Japan or in northern Australia for combat operations in the Taiwan area. Because of these factors, a contingency in the Taiwan Strait is likely to present very different risks of escalation to the current situation in Ukraine. In the Ukraine conflict right now, there are no key supremely valuable military assets involved on the US or the Allied and the Russian side. By contrast, if we look at how a military conflict over Taiwan might play out, some very important and high-value military platforms like intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance satellites, nuclear early warning systems, aircraft carriers, all of these could be hit very quickly in the opening rounds of a military clash over Taiwan. And what we call a use-it-or-lose-it dilemma could present very early in a conflict where both sides 
fear the loss of some of their very uh, high-end military capabilities and want to use them before they perhaps are targeted by the opposing side. All of these factors mean that the nuclear risks that we will face in a conflict over Taiwan, I suspect, will be much more intense, dramatic and pressing than they are in Ukraine. And this is something that's neglected in almost all of the discussion about a Taiwan contingency, which often assumes that there'll be no problem in keeping the conflict at the conventional level. Now, if they're the differences, there might be some similarities across the two situations. What's quite fascinating about what we've seen in Ukraine is it has revealed where the offence-defence balance lies in, in the present day. This is essentially a question about whether it's easier to take territory than it is to defend it. And we always have ideas about where the offence-defence balance lies, but it's only when these ideas are tested in combat or in conflict that we actually know. And we have seen in Ukraine very small uh, sort of section or squad level weapons like Javelin anti-tank missiles used to very great effect. And we have seen them used to blunt what everybody expected to be a very rapid military operation. So events in Ukraine suggest that if you've got the right equipment and the right intelligence, that the defence is dominant. And this should actually inject caution into the minds of anyone who's contemplating territorial aggression. I would be very uh, worried about this kind of possibility if I was contemplating invading a neighbouring territory. We would also expect to see a difference of essentially the what is at stake question, I think, across a Ukraine situation and a, uh, a Taiwanese contingency. We are already seeing European allies of the United States thinking about what Europe will look like once this conflict ends. How will they live with Russia once a new status quo is reached? Whereas the Americans, uh, at least according to comments that have been made, are still more focused on essentially trying to ensure that Ukraine wins the conflict, that Russia is humiliated and that it is seen to have lost. My feeling is that if we see a, a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, we very well may see the same kind of tensions emerging between the views of regional states who will probably be thinking earlier than the US does about what the world and what the region looks like once that conflict has ended, whereas the United States might be more focused on other factors. And finally... I think that we need to think very carefully about how a state's sense of reputation or prestige might come into their decision-making. So Biden's comments about the Ukraine situation suggest that concern for America's reputation, both within Europe and also globally, that this concern has indeed influenced his decision-making on Ukraine. But this, importantly, has limits. The United States has decided that does not have critical interest at stake. It is very, very carefully calibrating the level of support. And so it's trying to manage this dilemma of supporting Ukraine while also managing the risks of escalation. I think it's too soon to say how Ukraine will affect the US thinking about the conflict in Taiwan. And I think it, it probably will be revising some of the, the previous assumptions that US war planners have had about what a Taiwan contingency might look like. So all of the factors that I've just discussed to me, are the relevant ones that weigh upon my mind as I consider the question. But I actually think that it's too soon to say how observations of the conflict in Ukraine will affect decision-making uh, in any possible conflict over Taiwan. The Ukraine playbook, I guess, of, of the West supplying arms, intelligence and military training outside the battle space, this isn't something that can be sort of neatly and easily applied in a cookie-cutter fashion to any scenario over Taiwan. The United States in particular will have uh, much different levels of risk that it needs to consider because it is far more likely to become 
directly involved through the use of US military force in the contingency over Taiwan. So while there are things that we can look at uh, the Ukraine situation and try and draw lessons, it is probably a bit too soon for anyone to confidently say how any of these factors are going to influence decision-making in, in any future Taiwan crisis. But I, I, I am sceptical of the view that essentially the West's level of action in Ukraine will embolden China. I, I personally look at Ukraine and also not just Ukraine, but the previous experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I conclude the lesson that if you have a determined local opposition that can draw on some level of external support, that nation states these days are very, very hard to conquer comprehensively and that you know, efforts to do so far more often seem to lead to the embarrassment of the invading army and nation rather than success. That's very interesting. And so as a signatory of the ANZUS Treaty, US strategic policy toward the Taiwan Strait flashpoint has always had significant implications for Australia. So I'd be interested to get your thoughts on what actually are Australia's obligations in a potential Taiwan Strait crisis, and does the AUKUS agreement heighten the salience of these obligations? So I'll try and give a short answer to this one. Um, I've given uh, recently a public lecture on the very topic, and interested listeners can watch it on YouTube if they'd like. But the, the basic argument is that, as I read it, under the text of the ANZUS Treaty, Australia has no specific obligations to help the United States to defend Taiwan. Now, quite a few people say, well, you know, a, a basic reading of the treaty and you know the operative clauses of it suggests that we do. But what I point to is that it's important not to look at only the wording of an alliance treaty, but how it was understood by those who negotiated it. What was their intent as they negotiated it? What was said on the sidelines as they discussed with their, their counterparts? What various clauses and phrases in that treaty meant? And if we look for this context, as, as I discuss in the, the lecture that I've given, we see that Australian leaders, as they sat down with their Kiwi counterparts and planned on how to negotiate the treaty, they were determined to ensure that it did not obligate Australia to defend the Chinese nationalist forces that had retreated to Taiwan after the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Australia's foreign minister at the time was Percy Spender, and he regarded any Australian alliance commitment to the Chinese nationalist forces as, and I'll quote, impracticable. So not only do we have Spender and other figures doing their best to avoid this kind of commitment, we, can, we actually can look at US State Department records that have been declassified, which show that Australia's unwillingness to ally with the Chinese nationalists was actually very well known inside the US bureaucracy, inside the State Department in Washington. Also, we can kind of pose the counterfactual of if this obligation did exist, how would we have expected senior US decision makers to behave in light of that? And given that the guy who was the US Secretary of State during the 1950s and the First and Second Taiwan Strait Crisis, that is John Foster Dulles, he was the guy who negotiated the ANZUS Treaty. And I've trawled through the US and Australian archives on the First Taiwan Strait Crisis in particular, and I have found no suggestion that Dulles ever said that Australia had an obligation to assist in the defence of Taiwan. Now, he would know. He was the guy who, who negotiated the treaty and drafted it. And so if such an obligation did exist, we would very, very much expect him to talk about it in those crises. The fact that he didn't do so suggests to me very strongly that he didn't think that there was such an obligation. 
Now, all that said, to say that Australia has no specific obligations under the ANZUS Treaty is not to say that if a fourth Thailand Strait crisis broke out that the Americans would simply be satisfied if we said, well, we've read the treaty closely and we've read all the associated documents and we don't think there's a specific obligation. The US in recent years, from sort of the 90s onwards, has signalled its belief that Australia does have an obligation, though it hasn't ever really explicated, publicly at least, why it thinks that obligation exists based on a reading of the treaty. But it does raise the question as to whether uh, they expect Australian support and whether a disappointed America might seek to punish Australia if we did not provide support. As far as we know, turning now to AUKUS, it doesn't affect our treaty obligations. Uh, we know very little about AUKUS still. We have no agreement text or anything like this. It's not an alliance or a mutual defence pact like the ANZUS Security Treaty is. But what AUKUS has done has led some commentators to essentially assert that Australia doesn't have a choice anymore. Uh, Professor Aaron Friedberg at Princeton University tweeted something to the effect of, AUKUS means that if the US and China end up fighting, Australia will have no choice but to help the United States. I see it quite differently. I think it gives the United States additional influence and um, leverage, essentially, in that we will become even more dependent on them for what will be one of our key defence platforms and that they would, in intra-alliance bargaining, be able to use that dependence and leverage as a source of bargaining strength on their side. But it doesn't commit us to doing anything, and it's really important, in my view, that Australian leaders prioritise that freedom of action and try and avoid things that lock Australia in too closely and essentially deprive us of the ability to make our own sovereign decisions at some point in the future if conflict breaks out. Perfect. Thank you very much. So you mentioned the importance of context beyond what is sort of explicitly stated in the treaty there. So I'd be curious to know what position has Australia taken during the historical Taiwan Strait crisis? This is a, a great question. And it's one because the historical record of how this plays out differs to how many of us sort of instinctively think that it would play out. There's kind of this idea that we always fear the United States leaving Asia we always want to see them take a, a firm stand and demonstrate resolve. And indeed, very, very often, American decision makers and commentators carry those assumptions about allied desires around in their minds. And when we look at historical crises like the first Taiwan Strait crisis in particular, we can see that those ideas were very, very dominant in the early stages of the crisis. But that as time went on, US allies actually sort of launched this concerted effort to convince Washington, D.C. that this wasn't their primary concern, that, of course, they didn't want to see Taiwan fall to the, to the Chinese communists, and that was never actually a real risk in the first Taiwan Strait crisis, but that all of their concerns about how the Chinese nationalists might retreat or back down and their concerns along those lines were also had to be balanced against their concerns of escalation. And indeed, as the crisis continued and the risks of escalation got more and more severe and eventually resulted in the United States threatening the use of nuclear weapons. US allies stepped back and essentially said, we, we will have no part of this and did their very best to try and restrain the United States. It was a, a fairly similar story in the second Taiwan Strait crisis, although it didn't quite have the same risks of escalation because of how it occurred. And indeed, in the third Taiwan Strait crisis, 
it's, it's a little bit harder to pass because we don't have the same level of documentary record that we do. Uh, a lot of those documents remain classified. But Australia and, and other US allies in the region don't want a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. They don't look forward to this kind of thing. And so while US decision makers are often focused on the idea of not appearing weak, their allies in the region are often not so concerned about that, I think, and are willing to instead put the emphasis on restraint and on de-escalation. Because, of course, if there is a conflict, it will happen in our region and it will be uh, incredibly destructive and disruptive, even at low levels. And so the emphasis is a little bit different. The operating assumption that many American policymakers bring into a crisis about what their allies will want, I think, in reality, is, is likely to be a bit different. So I think that's a really interesting answer and sort of ties very well into what you write in your paper, what allies want, considering loyalty, reliability and alliance interdependence. In this paper, you propose that in many cases, states actually do not always desire their allies to behave with resolve, but rather want them to demonstrate shared interests and strategies towards achieving these said interests. With this in mind, I think that Prime Minister Albanese's response when asked to comment on Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is really interesting. Albanese stated, The level of US engagement with our Taiwanese counterparts is a matter for them, a message that was reiterated by the foreign minister. I'd love to hear what you think Albanese's reaction tells us about the position of Australia's current government toward the Taiwan issue. This was a a really interesting reaction that, of course, contrasted a fair bit with the kind of reaction that we might have expected from figures in the previous government. So yes, I think this tells us that their primary concern is that of possible escalation and that they are less concerned about, say, for example, uh, what we saw in many areas of the US commentariat and, and think tank world was essentially that Pelosi has to go because now if she doesn't go, the United States will look weak. This was a concern in Washington, DC. That kind of thing doesn't resonate if you are in the region and forced to confront the possibility that a a visit by the Speaker of the House may very well precipitate a military crisis. I think the interesting contrast here is between that of the previous government and the current government. What we saw from the previous government was a laser-like focus on deterrence, although this was not very often spelt out in concrete terms. It seemed to be an effort to try and form a coalition in waiting and that the possibility of such a coalition forming to defend Taiwan would deter China from attempting to annex it by the use of military force. I think the current government, based on comments like this and also on comments that they made while they were in opposition, perhaps does not have quite the same overwhelming focus on deterrence as the path to peace or the path to stability. And I suspect that they are probably more willing to consider diplomatic compromise or negotiation as a way in which stability and the status quo might be maintained. So I think it's interesting just in terms of kind of what it reveals about the first instinct of senior ministers, whether it's to try and and appear strong and focus on deterrence or whether it's to try and uh, calm a crisis down. Amazing. And so I was thinking there that, in fact, it could actually illustrate a sort of considered effort from our government to look beyond purely considerations of our alliance with the US and consider the interests of our other allies and partners, particularly within the region. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the way that it's very often thought of, and I, I think it was indeed Thomas Schelling who first wrote about this as a game of chicken, where there are two cars barreling towards each other. And, you know, you demonstrate resolve by essentially partaking in a competition of risk-taking. It's very, very natural for the leaders of great powers when they get into these kind of crises to think that their reputations are on the line and that they have to demonstrate resolve and courage or recklessness and essentially through brinksmanship and threats force the other guy to back down and and to be the car that swerves away in the game of chicken but what those kind of models and those kinds of um, mental maps fail to account is that Yes, okay, you know, if, if, we, if we take the chicken analogy, the US and China are playing chicken with each other or, or uh, you know, in a crisis could very well be engaging in that kind of competition of risk-taking. But that if those cars crash, it's going to be more than the occupants of those two cars that wear the consequences. It's like that it's occurring on a, a speedway and there's people in the, in the audience stands and those two cars are loaded with dynamite. The state that pulls away and backs down, if the alternative is significant risks of nuclear war they are not likely to be chastised for for backing down and for you know being feckless they're likely to be praised for being sensible and avoiding unnecessary or um, unwise risks of nuclear war so a lot of these ideas that we have as we enter a crisis are not the ideas that we have as we leave the crisis Fantastic. So just to finish us off today, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on how Australia can best balance the potential reputational repercussions of failing to demonstrate a commitment to support the US in a conflict over Taiwan, while avoiding the potential harm that demonstrating too much resolve could do to our relationships with other partners in the Asia-Pacific. I think the first thing would be to really take the possibility of a conflict over Taiwan seriously. And I'm not convinced that the previous government always did that. Some of their comments on Taiwan, to me, felt a little bit more like cosplay than they did genuine, sober-minded positioning. If there is a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, and if it escalates the way that some military analysts fear, it could make every post-World War II conflict pale into comparison in terms of the destructive power that might be unleashed, including the possible use of nuclear weapons, in how quickly it could escalate and the the pressures that would actually be on both sides to escalate first if they thought that the other side was contemplating escalation. There's a lot of the same sort of dynamics that, uh, that manifested in the opening stages of the First World War, that we could see recur, but they could recur on far faster timelines. And so that's why I think the best thing that we could do is to say that obviously avoiding this kind of crisis is extremely important and making our policy in light of an awareness of just how bad that kind of conflict could be is really important. And that signalling early that we will help the United States to defend Taiwan, this may be something that in time we come to regret if it encourages them or to take aggressive postures. It's also a little bit irresponsible, I think, to generate that impression if it is something that is only held by one of the two political parties that are likely to form government in Australia. 
it's one thing for the coalition to create the impression that uh, it would say yes and it would help the United States to defend Taiwan. And definitely that's the kind of impression that Peter Dutton generated. But he couldn't, in doing so, speak for Australia. He could only speak for a coalition government. And it worries me a little bit that sometimes uh, our American friends might hear what someone like Dutton says and think, ah, Australia's all in. Yep, Australia will help us. We'll be able to operate B-2s out of Amberley and they'll send some submarines up and they'll do all these things. And indeed, perhaps that is what a coalition government would have done. But the indications are at the moment, I think, that the current Labor government would not quite see things in the same way. And so given that we don't have, I think, strong bipartisan consensus on the kind of um, response we would uh, engage in during this kind of crisis, I think it's pretty irresponsible to do things that create that impression. And I think it's far more responsible to uh, cleave tightly to the, the old bipartisan long-standing idea that we, uh, we don't comment on hypothetical situations and also that we compare notes with other countries in the region and take more seriously how countries like Japan view it, how Singapore view it, and, and try to figure out, well, in a crisis, how might we be able to work with them to influence not just China but also the United States? Fantastic. Well, that will bring us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thanks, Tim.